Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. On April 6, 2018, Jaskrat Singh Sidhu, a permanent resident of Canada, was driving a truck in rural Saskatchewan. He drove through a stop sign without stopping and crashed into a bus that was carrying individuals from a Humboldt hockey team. 16 people were killed, another 13 were injured. Mr. Sidhu pled guilty to 29 counts of dangerous driving. He was sentenced to eight years in prison. He now faces deportation proceedings. On today's episode, we are joined by Mr. Sidhu's lawyer, Michael Green. Michael is representing Mr. Sidhu in his efforts to stay in Canada and avoid deportation. Michael last appeared on Borderlines podcast episode 17, where he discussed issues with pre-clearance legislation. Now, in today's episode, we do not discuss Mr. Sidhu's case specifically or in great detail. Rather, we discuss issues with the deportation of permanent residents in general in Canada. We talk about how the process works, what factors the Canada Border Services Agency and in some cases the Immigration and Refugee Board consider, and tips and strategies for permanent residents as well as their counsel who receive an inadmissibility report for serious criminality or receive a procedural fairness letter regarding an inadmissibility report for serious criminality. Now, one thing I note that we do not discuss, and will save for a future episode, is an in-depth look at the history of unsuccessful charter litigation that has gone all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada against Canada's practice of deporting long-term permanent residents. Uh, This litigation has been unsuccessful for the most part, and the practice continues. And just in brief during this intro, what I mean by that is that if someone comes to Canada even as a baby and spend their whole life in Canada, but they don't acquire Canadian citizenship, they can be deported to their country of citizenship at the age of 50 or 60, as the Federal Court of Appeal affirmed last year. Anyway, if you would like to contact me, I can be uh, found, my contact information can be found at larley.com, L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. My name is Stephen Murens. Deanna Okanachov's information can be found at mccrae.com, M-C-C-R-E-A dot C-O-M. And Michael Green can be found at sheritgreen.com, S-H-E-R-I-T-T-G-R-E-E-N-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I've spoken at a lot of conferences with uh, criminal lawyers, uh, you know, put on by criminal lawyers or for criminal lawyers, and, and for immigration lawyers too, about the intersection of of uh, criminal law and, and immigration law. It's what's really important is that anyone who's a permanent resident uh, who's uh, facing criminal charges should not only get uh, legal advice and representation from a criminal defense lawyer, they should also be seeing an immigration lawyer. And um, I want to be really emphatic that it should not be an immigration consultant. It, it needs to be a lawyer because these are technical legal issues that are involved and often this is going to play itself out in, in federal court uh, or, or in a, a very legalistic uh, process. And I've seen way too many cases messed up uh, by people who really didn't 
have a, enough depth of, of knowledge, uh, legal knowledge, uh, to, to be able to advise. When you say a permanent resident, um, does that include like only recent immigrants or people who became permanent residents as children, but for whatever reason never became citizens? There, there is a, there was supposed to be a distinction and it's almost all disappeared, but you know, how long you've been in Canada is a relevant factor. But the fact is, um, if you're a citizen, you can't be deported for criminality, full stop. You're, you're, you, you have a right to stay in Canada and you can't, that right can't be taken away. Um, if you're a permanent resident, however, um, the, the Supreme Court has said in a case called Chiarelli that um, there is no absolute right to stay in Canada or there's no right to enter or to stay in Canada. The government can limit that, those rights. And one of the things they can do uh, is they can deport people um, who have committed criminal offenses or who have criminality issues. And uh, that, that was more recently upheld uh, in a case called Metamarsky after the Immigration Refugee Protection Act came into to force. And they, they cited Chiarelli and said, you know, you are subject to possible removal. The threshold for removal, if somebody's not a permanent resident, like let's say they're a temporary resident, is very low. It's just you know, the slightest conviction can get you, you uh, hunted from Canada. But with, with permanent residents, it, it's higher. So. And this is why this goes back to the, you know, why working with criminal lawyers is so important. So um, if I could just maybe outline the, the, the grounds for, for uh, being deported, if it's a conviction in Canada, uh, you, can, you can lose your permanent resident status if uh, you're convicted of an offense uh, that would carry a, a possible sentence of 10 years or more uh, imprisonment, or if you receive uh, a sentence of six months imprisonment. Um, even if it's a less serious offense, if you're, if you're in a sense to six months. So um, quite often we work with criminal lawyers um, in, uh, you know, advising them about uh, the, what, what kind of a, a plea bargain is acceptable and what's not, what the consequences would be of different possible outcomes um, uh, of, a, of a, a conviction or uh, of, of certain kinds of sentences. Because I've seen many, many cases where a criminal defense lawyer advised a, a, a client to take a, a, a plea bargain uh, because they thought it was a really good deal, a heck of a deal from a criminal law point of view, not realizing that it's catastrophic, it's, it's, it's uh, fatal to a person's chances of staying in Canada in some cases. Um, and I've had so many clients who said, I would never have taken that deal or I wouldn't have pled guilty if I'd known that that's, this could, could result. Now I want to so uh, pause on that for yeah. just a second and give... Um, like an example and then a question. So we acted, I did an appeal once for someone whose criminal counsel had pled him down from an assault conviction to a criminal harassment conviction on the basis, I guess, that in criminal law, criminal harassment is considered a lesser offense than assault. But in the immigration context, it's the complete opposite because one falls on assault is what is known as general criminality doesn't have that 10-year threshold that you mentioned, while criminal harassment does. So the question that I want to ask is you said um, that if it's convicted in Canada of an offense punishable by a maximum term of imprisonment of at least 10 years or for an offense for which a term of imprisonment of more than six months is imposed. And I just want to highlight on that or uh, to ask, so does it mean like, does it mean that immigration law in determining whether someone is uh, inadmissible for serious criminality, it 
does not matter in that first part of whether the offense is punishable by a maximum term of imprisonment of at least 10 years, what the person's actual sentence was or whether they're prosecuted similarly or by indictment. Does, in the immigration law context, does the law just focus on, I guess you could say the, the general offense rather than what actually happened to the person in the criminal justice system? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, there's different repercussions for, for different, uh, different things, but it, um, it, it's the category of offense um, that can be the killer on this one. And uh, so you can be deportable, uh, for instance, if you're convicted of impaired driving now, because the new impaired driving laws that they put in a couple of years ago increased the sentence from maximum five years to maximum 10 years. Well, the fact that this maximum 10 years imprisonment, which has never been granted nobody's ever imposed a sentence even close to that, um, especially when, no, when nobody's been killed. Um, the, um, but by changing that categorization, that they, they put this into the most serious categorization for immigration purposes. So you could, you could be a situation where you're stopped, uh, you get convicted of impaired driving, nobody got hurt, it was just technically over 08, or it was a, you know, a finding that you were impaired at the time you were driving. Um, and uh, you can be deported for that now. If you if the conviction happened in Canada, um, you're you're going to have a right of appeal uh, to the Immigration Appeal Division, and they can consider all the circumstances of your case, and 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 you may get to stay. If you got a sentence of six months or more imprisonment, you don't have a right of appeal. And and it's it, then the only review is by by an immigration officer. Um, but what happens is there's also uh, situations where you can be lose your permanent resident status because of a conviction that happened outside of Canada. And so, uh, and, and this categorization is what it's all about. So if it's a maximum 10 year sentence in Canada, if the equivalent offense is a maximum 10 year sentence, then you could be deported um, just on the basis of the fact that you pled guilty or you were convicted in another jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, you don't, if it's, if it's serious criminality, that means it's a potential a sentence of 10 years or more, you don't have a right of appeal. So if you were, let's say, on a trip to Hawaii for your Christmas vacation and you happen to pick up an impaired driving charge, you could, that could result in your deportation from Canada with no right of appeal if, you, if you're convicted. Um, one of the more, uh, let's see, I, I think it's, it's odious. This, this was a change that taking away that appeal right happened in, in, in a change that was more recent, was in 2013 and something called the Faster Removal of Foreign Criminals Act um, that, that came under the Harper government. Um, before that, people did have a right of appeal for foreign convictions, uh, but that got taken away. Um, and and the, the Trudeau Liberals have done nothing to, to address it. It's, it's really something that makes me quite sad and, and somewhat angry is that um, there's, there's a real lack of, of procedural fairness and, 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 and so justice happening. When, when you say a right of appeal, why would someone want an appeal? Like, would the appeal just look at whether they were convicted or does an appeal look at other factors? Like, why would someone want an appeal? Sure. So the... Um, at, at, at an appeal, uh, the, the, the Immigration Appeal Division uh, has a broader jurisdiction. They don't just look at whether there's been a conviction. They look at um, all what's called all the circumstances of the case. And it comes out of a, a case that's uh, 
quite old and uh, called Ribich, R-I-B-I-C, uh, which is oft cited and, and totally accepted as by the Immigration Appeal Division as defining their uh, the factors they're supposed to look at. So the factors they look at, the seriousness of, of, the, of the offense, um, uh, the possibility of rehabilitation, um, the, the hardship that a person could suffer if they are, uh, if they are removed from Canada, um, the length of time they've been here and the degree of their, their establishment, uh, the family that they have here and what, what dislocation uh, or hardship they would suffer if, there was, if the person was removed from Canada. Uh, the, best, the best interest of the child has now become a big factor in that uh, because of the way the act is worded. And then the support that's available to the individual. Those are all, all the ribbage factors. Um, those are all the factors that the appeal division uh, considers. And, and so in a, in a hearing like that, you normally have testimony from the individual, from somebody in his family. You might have uh, psychological reports, um, all kinds of evidence to show that you know, the person is established and that they have a strong support system that uh, explaining the nature of the offense and um, whether or not the person is a threat or a risk to, uh, to reoffend. Those are all kinds of things you, you, you would put in evidence to show at a, at a hearing. If perhaps if they've no been here all their life, if they have children here, all of these sorts of things, if they perhaps have no ties to their country of citizenship, all these kinds of materials. I, I've had uh, I've got one going right now that he came as a refugee from Ethiopia when he was an infant. Um, he's never, he has no recollection of living there. Um, and of course, as often happens, uh, these kids get you know, into some criminal activity um, and he's, that's what's happened you know, to him. And he got involved in, in really within about a, a one week span, two weeks span, I got you know, three offenses with two of which resulted in charges, three of them and two resulted in convictions. But hmm. um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing I'd wanna go in front of the board and explain all of these things. Hmm. But, um, and that this guy's a product of Canadian society. Hmm, um, for sure. You know, he's not a, it's, it's not a foreign criminal. Like this is, you know, the, the idea that foreign criminals were invading Canada, that that, be, that was used as the justification. I don't think we should be deporting people who came here as children, but we are. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're hell bent on deporting this fellow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And when you say that too, like Michael, sometimes when this person that you're defending has Canadian children themselves and those children would then be left without their Canadian or their permanent resident parent because of the way that the efficiencies of the system where their parent might not even have a right of appeal. Um, and those considerations would not be taken uh, into consideration by the board because of the lack of a, an appeal. These are the sorts of uh, miscarriages of justice that I think we're trying to address in, in this conversation. So, you know, maybe it's a, uh, so, so because of those thresholds, and I, I've had this come up too with, with uh, people who are facing uh, charges in foreign jurisdictions where I've worked with the, the, their criminal defense counsel in foreign jurisdictions as well. Um, often is, uh, you know, what I'll do is I'll write a written opinion, uh, sometimes a, an affidavit um, uh, that will be used in court, uh, in, uh, usually in sentencing. Uh, or sometimes in sentence appeals. Hmm. So I've, uh, you know, that, that the, uh, the um, Supreme Court of Canada has said that um, if the immigration consequences are a relevant factor for judges to consider, 
and that it can be an error of law if the judge doesn't consider relevant immigration consequences, you know, such as deportation, for instance, um, when, when, they're, when they're doing sentencing. So um, that's often a ground of appeal um, if you're trying to get the sentence changed because the, the sentence that was imposed is going to result in, uh, in deportation. Yeah. Michael, so are I you... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just wondering if you're at liberty to tell us, like, um, now that you've set out the framework for how this works in the immigration scheme, I'm wondering if you're at liberty to tell us how how this um, sort of machinery worked in in application to the Sidhu case, um, how how this played out in terms of the the criminal process and the criminal sentencing, and um, you know how the consequences played out um, on the circumstances of his case. Um, sure. Let's talk about what, what the um, what the process is. So, you know, when um, the Minister of Immigration uh, got before Parliament, uh, the Parliamentary Committee, when they had proposed uh, the IRPA, um, and it was being vetted by the committee, um, she made representations, uh, and her, and her um, assistant deputy, deputy minister uh, made representations to the committee about how the system would work. And um, I remember I was, at that time I was national chair of the Bar Association's immigration section. And um, so I had a lot of meetings with these people. The, the personal meeting with the minister um, uh, where she said, my office can make better decisions than the IAD. And there had been a very high profile case in, in Toronto where uh, called the Just Desserts case where a person got shot in a restaurant um, during a robbery. And, and one of the people, one of the four people who ended up being charged was a person who had been before the Immigration Appeal Division and they had stayed his, his removal. Um, and uh, there was absolute outrage that this guy was still in Canada. Now, he, he, his conviction that he was, uh, they stayed the removal for was uh, break and enter. Uh, so it was like, you know, it's not like this guy had a, a history of, of really serious violent crime, violent crime but the public was outraged um, and uh, the board member who made the decision was pilloried in the press. The picture was all over the place. And the minister, I think, was really motivated because of that particular case um, and maybe others like it to say, no, we're going to have, we're going to do this administratively. So she said, we're going to uh, have uh, a consideration of all the circumstances of the case. That is the Ribbage factors, but it's not going to be done by a judge. It's going to be done by uh, an immigration officer. And when she said that her officers could do it better, did you mention, well, maybe I'm getting the timeline wrong. Did you mention that? But you're giving the power to CBSA, which is being created right now. They're no longer immigration officers. Well, so that's the thing is that when she said that, there was no such thing as the CBSA. Um, CBSA didn't come into uh, existence until three or four years later. Um, uh, what it was, was the, the immigration department, was immigration officers, immigration officers who routinely deal with issues of family reunification and uh, humanitarian factors. They're, they're applying those kind of factors all the time, that kind of discretion. Um, and, and so, you know, she made these representations that these circumstances will all be considered. And, and moreover, that for long-term permanent residents who came as, as minors and have been here for 10 years, uh, they would be considered at a very high level. So it wouldn't just be a frontline officer, it would be a high level officer um, and presumably in her office. And she said, you know, the, her ADM, her, her assistant deputy minister told parliament that, you know, we're only in, under the, their current practice, which was they could deport people if, there was a, if they were declared a danger to the public. 
she said there were five or six of those a year. And she said, we expect that that will be the practice in the future. Um, well, that's not what happened. And we knew this would, would play out like this uh, in one way or the other. That, that what's happened is that the CBSA got created, that the power to do, make these decisions went from the immigration department to the CBSA. The CBSA is an enforcement organization. They're, they're basically the immigration police. And so now, instead of, uh, instead of immigration officers who are used to considering humanitarian factors deciding the case, we've got uh, enforcement officers and their mandate is to remove people as quickly as possible. Huh. And, and they also delegated down the, the, the long-term permanent resident consideration down to the, the, the local level. And so there is no longer any, um, any special consideration for long-term permanent residents. It's now become just one of the many factors they're supposed to consider, which is how long has a person been in Canada? Anyway, so what's happened is that um, it's, it's, it's public knowledge that, that Mr. Sidhu did not contest his charges. He, he did not plea bargain. Um, he pled guilty to every single thing he was charged with. Um, he perhaps could have plea bargained, probably could have, um, could have, uh, you know, there's some question about whether his standard of, 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 of the, the conduct of, of his driving would even meet the dangerous driving test set down, set down by the Supreme Court of Canada. But he took that off the table uh, by just entering guilty pleas, not wanting to cause any more harm, any more um, stress to the, the victims and their families. Um, and he did not uh, make uh, submissions as to what the sentence should be. Um, his lawyer put some case law before uh, the judge, but that was it. And, 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 um, no, and no more, so it was to, just let, left like that. So it became an automatic thing that once he was convicted and sentenced uh, to more than six months in jail, he would not have a right of appeal. And um, when consideration was given to whether to deport him, it would be made at the officer level. By operation of law. By operation of law. Um, the law such as it is right now, unfortunately. Um, so the, the way that process works is, is an officer reviews it, decides whether or not to write a report. Um, in that report, they decide whether or not to make a, a recommendation to proceed to a deportation hearing or not. That report is then reviewed uh, by a more senior officer. Um, formerly, that would have been at a high, much higher level, but it's been delegated down to the local level again. So it's a supervisor. Mm -hmm. Who makes the decision as to whether it should be referred uh, to a hearing. If it's referred to a hearing, then deportation is automatic because the, the mm -hmm. member has no, no discretion about what to do with the case. They cannot, um, they cannot not issue the removal order. Like I know I was, I'm, I'm stating yeah. the obvious, but like they, their, their hands are tied. They have no alternative totally but to issue the removal those, order. Yeah. Those cases, and, you know, if properly run, those cases shouldn't take more than 20 minutes. Yeah, I don't even bother um, accompanying my clients to them. It's not it's not worthwhile. If I do, it's just to have somebody to hold their hand, you know, like, but there's nothing I can say or do at all. No, you're right. It's, uh, it's uh, we go in there, uh, as soon as they establish they're not citizens, um, they'll have an affidavit from an officer that says that, um, that they've done a search, they're not a citizen, and, and then they've got a certificate of conviction um, and a story. Yeah. Um, 
to show the sentence was more than six months, then bang, no right of appeal after that. If there's less than six months, then they get to file a, a notice of appeal and then the appeal process goes. So with Mr. Siddow, uh, we are at stage one of this process. Um, uh, he got served with a notice that they were considering, uh, going to consider this whether to issue a uh, removal order because he was uh, liable to possibly get one. And uh, we made uh, our submissions um, a few months ago, actually, and we're waiting for uh, we're waiting for them to make their decision. So here's my million dollar question, Michael, because like you know what you're talking about is his window of opportunity to not get referred to the board is that he replies to this 44 report and says, "Don't write me up, don't send it to the board." I've done that a lot of times in my career, um, you know, now I don't even know how many years I've been practicing, almost 20 now. And I think I've succeeded once in getting them not to write it up. And the one time that they didn't write it up was a very, very minor misrepresentation. And the woman was pregnant and da da da. But like in any criminality case, I have never been successful. And I don't know if I'm just doing it wrong, but like I have found that in my experience, what officers have said is that their discretion to not write it up and not send it to the board is, and I've read the jurisprudence on this. They've said that their discretion, some officers have said that they don't even have discretion to not write it up. And I've read those cases. So I'm just, I'm interested in what your view is about how much power does an officer have to not write it up and not send it to the board? Um, they, yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think it's, it's got a lot to do with the culture that has developed in the CBSA um, over the years since it was founded. It didn't um, used to be like that. I mean, I should say uh, the one that I was successful and I think maybe there were a few more that are just like older than my memory, but um, they were they were old. And now I just feel like it's almost like, nope, sorry, sorry, we have to do this. This is just my job. I'm just writing it up and sending it over. Yeah, I, that's, uh, isn't that the truth? It's, it's, uh, it's really, the culture has changed. Um, yeah, it's become too. much more enforcement oriented. Um, and um, there is, far less uh, uh, exercise of that discretion. And you know, to my disappointment, I've had cases where the officer actually recommended that they not take this person to inquiry and they were uh, overridden by their supervisor. Yes, um, I agree. And, That's exactly what I've seen too. And even I've had cases that got referred to the board and then I was able to settle it with, uh, with um, a council that was appointed um, you know, to represent the department, but that referral just seems to me almost administrative, you know? Well, it's just, you know, it's unfortunate and, and they developed, you know, and the, the federal court um, I, I has been very conservative in its approach to this, uh, to, to these cases. And, and uh, you know, essentially, in, in notwithstanding what the minister and her representative said to parliament, um, and basically, uh, that, you know that there would be full and full consideration of all of the factors. All that's the Rivik factors. That's yeah. what I think. And, uh, it, it's the proof is in the pudding now, and we can see that it's not five or six people per year. You know, it's 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 happening just it's uh, on a daily basis. It's happening and and across the country. And uh, I'm sure there are probably some officers and some offices that maybe are a little bit more. Um, flexible or, or, or willing to give somebody a second chance. But it's, it's quite unfortunate that uh, 
the way we've seen it develop. Um, I find the role of the feel. supervisor, like I've also, not in this context, but in other removal contexts, had the, uh, I really want to do this and I want to give you what you're asking for, but I just ran it by my supervisor and they said no, so I have to say no, which adds a whole weird fettering of discretion angle to everything. Um, but how have, like, have you ever actually when you've been confronted with that from an officer gotten in front of a supervisor or actually learned what the interaction between the officer and the supervisor who you are the client, the person being deported never meets or never presents evidence to directly what that interaction between the officer and the supervisor is? Well, here's the thing is that and this is another frustrating thing. And I think, um, it's going to change because um, uh, of the Vavilov decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, but here's what, what happens with the process. The officer writes up a very detailed report um, explaining their, their rationale and what, how they dealt with your arguments and, um, uh, and you know, why they reached their recommendation. And it's very, very thorough. The supervisor scrolls out a couple of lines uh, on the report saying I concur and then because of a uh, person's escalating criminality or pattern of criminal activity or something like that and and then signs it and you've got two or three lines and that, I've seen that over and over again and there's mm -hmm. um, you know if you do a, an access to information request to try to find no certain now I've got a feeling that somebody can successfully challenge that um, if they continue that practice uh, because um, the Vavilov decision says that they have to show their reasoning. They have to justify their decision. You, you, you can't, you can no longer guess at, at what process they went through. They have to justify it. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we'll, we may see some challenges, um, hopefully successful challenges to the, the process they have. But, you know, this is a good time to comment on another real serious problem they have there is the, is the procedural fairness aspect. Um, it's not just the mentality or the culture within the CBSA, which has become um, far less friendly and far more just focused on removal. Um, it's the process they go through, which shows that, you know, a lack of commitment, I think, to procedural fairness. When they send out the letter to tell the person that they're facing possible deportation and they've got a chance to make some submissions to them, they say, you've got 15 days. Now, in some jurisdictions, they'll give them the, the, a complex form that's part of the immigration officer's manuals. Um, and, and so that at least allows them to know what the factors are and give them more information. But uh, a lot of these guys are in prison when they get the letter. And they, they don't have easy access to counsel, if at all, it, it's, it, or it'll take too long. And if they have to go through legal aid, there's no way they're going to get that in 15 days and be able to respond. And so they'll scroll whatever you know, information they can to answer the questions. And usually it's in just a few pieces of paper, if that. Um, and that becomes their entire submission. Hmm. And a decision gets made on that. Um, I've never seen uh, the complex form, Michael. Um, I've only ever seen the, like, the Bear 44 report. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a, an appendix to, um, uh, to the uh, manual. I can't remember which, which manual is it, EMF 14 maybe? Yeah, probably. But it's, it's, it's one of the appendices to it, but I've never seen it given to one of my clients. I did see it in somebody else's paper. They appended it and said, you know, this is what our clients. Um, 
they send. But um, yeah, I don't know why they don't send that. That would be more helpful. I don't know why For they sure. only get 15 days. Is everything else in the immigration pretty well? You get more than 15 days. So the first mm-hmm. thing we always do in we ask for more time. And I always yeah, ask absolutely. Mm-hmm. Ask for 90 days. But the guy who's in prison um, and without access to counsel, we see these cases all the time. Uh, they often, the decisions made before they ever get a chance to give any legal advice. And so they, you know, the, the 15 days, they either don't send anything in or they send in something that's really poor. Uh, we had a case a couple of years ago where um, the guy was uh, originally from Vietnam. Although he'd been here a long time, he didn't speak English. Um, and they sent the letter. They didn't use an interpreter to explain it to him. A fellow inmate explained it to him and rather poorly. And his submissions were absolutely crap. There was nothing there. He didn't know what he was doing. And um, usually in those situations where I've gone uh, uh, back to them and said, look, this person get, didn't get a fair shot. Um, would you reopen, consider reopening this so that we can make proper submissions? They usually tell me, no, he already has had his chance. And they did say that at this one, except when we, we, we moved to challenge it. And, and I think we went to federal court on it, but they, they ended up backing down. Where they went to federal court or threatened to go to federal court because they said, complete denial of natural justice. You did not provide an interpreter. This guy didn't know what he was, that's not procedural fairness. And so they backed down and, and, and reopened that one. But usually it's, it's, it's best for the legal. The other thing that's really bothersome about their, uh, how they deal with procedural fairness is their failure to disclose relevant information. Um, what they give these people is just the bare bones. You've been convicted of an offense, you're a permanent resident, you're, you could be deported. And then that's it. Um, but quite often they are considering other evidence that they don't show to the individual. Huh. Um, like police reports are the most notorious things that they do. Uh-huh. Police reports is an officer's notes um, uh, at the time of laying charges and uh, preparing charges uh, you know, to go to, to court. Um, they're, they're subjective. They're based on the opinion of the officer. Um, they, they don't often reflect the, the real evidence. They reflect what evidence the officer might have had. Like, so they, they may have gotten a complaint. And so that complaint goes in the police report. Um, and it may turn out that what the outcome of the case, the charges are not proceeded with, or they're, they're you know, serious charges are dropped, but often there's facts in there that are, are, are quite damaging. Uh-huh. And they don't, they don't, won't provide because they say the police provide that to us on condition that it not be disclosed. Um, well, and that's, that's what they hide behind. So they say we're not allowed to disclose it. But then you see references and in, in they clearly, it has influenced them, um, references, which is, is wrong. And I think that's a, that's a breach of procedural fairness. For sure. I haven't seen a, a, a case that's directly on point where uh, the federal court has, has held one way or the other on, on police reports. Although there's a lot where they comment on there's a, the duty of disclosure doesn't necessarily require disclosure of, of, disclosure of every single document if the person knows what they have to meet. Uh, but you know we've got one that's in federal court right now um, where they referred to a bunch of evidence that was seized uh, that didn't result in any convictions. Um, including a firearm, for instance, that was found uh, found in the premises. Now, there's a premises that this fellow didn't own, but he had access to. Um, he had a key, uh, but there was no. It wasn't clear whether the, the firearm was something that he had any knowledge of or control of. But it gets referred to, and we uh, we did not get disclosed 
of the police report. Moreover, they, you know, their policy is they won't do any meaningful disclosure until after they refer the matter to a hearing. Well, that's too late for you to respond because the hearing isn't going to consider those factors anymore that you can't. And so, um, but that's, a, that's, a, that's their policy on disclosure and it's, it's atrocious. It's, it's, it's a very uh, interesting point because we, in a previous podcast, uh, talked about the Federal Court of Appeal decision in Brown, where the Federal Court of Appeal said that in Immigration Refugee Board proceedings, the CBSA has to disclose all, um, all evidence, not just evidence that's helpful to them. But at, in what we're talking about today, this, the CBSA, the stage one, as you calls it, occurs before it goes to the IRB. So it's, mm. it's I, and Brown doesn't actually address, Brown's limited to the IRB. Mm-hmm. So this, no, this lack of disclosure, as you're uh, talking about, I guess, continues to be a live issue. But when uh, the... Go ahead. No, 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 sorry, say that, I, go ahead, please, Michael. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm really hopeful that it, it will get addressed by the Supreme Court. If you look at the parallel of what's happened in, uh, in criminal law. Um, cases are routinely thrown out because of the failure to cr- of the Crown to disclose relevant evidence, including exculpatory evidence. But um, that routinely, and the Supreme Court has come down very hard on it, and, and so that the Crown knows if they don't disclose everything, their case could, could bolt. And, and, you know, the CBSA, on the other hand, uh, has been given I think a bit too much of a free hand by the federal courts. And I remember the federal court is not a criminal court. Um, While it's a superior court, they don't deal with criminal law normally. They do in the military context, but but not. So you've got your judges at the federal court mostly don't have experience in in, in criminal law. Um, And that may may have colored why in the immigration law, uh, there seems to be far less procedural fairness. And also this, this, um, going back to the Chiarelli decision that, 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 that you know permanent residents are not citizens and so they don't have the same uh, same rights. Uh, I, I hope the courts will revisit that in the future and, and uh, there's been a lot of suggestion that with law that's developed since Chiarelli it's about time they reviewed that. Well um, so our firm was uh, involved with in 2019 there were two cases ours was Ravel and the other case I think was called Mondano and they both involve charter challenges on the deportation of long-term permanent residents. And the Federal Court of Appeal dismissed both challenges and leave to the Supreme Court was denied in both cases. Um, so at least on the charter grounds, the, uh, the charter arguments, the Supreme Court, I agree it would be great if they did revisit uh, the deportation of long-term permanent residents especially, but it doesn't look like the Supreme Court is there yet. The, you know what I haven't seen like I've seen that the the, um, the federal court of appeal decision in Ravel and and, and um, uh, that that didn't consider the procedural fairness aspect. It considered whether it was a violation of section seven yeah. uh, to deport somebody without a hearing, without an appeal hearing, and mm, uh, right. basically that the, the, the parliament can do that. Um, that they they can they can streamline deportation processes, but but um, there's not been a, a def- anything definitive on the exact process of how they're how they're doing it, or that I've seen on procedural fairness. I agree, and what you're speaking to, Michael, is this issue 
around the 44 report process. To me, first of all, there seems to me there's contradictory jurisprudence about how much discretion there is on an officer. And I don't feel like it's being resolved. And I don't know if either of you disagrees as to whether or not, I feel like the court is a little bit equivocated on how much authority there is to be like, um, you know, yes, I can say, um, and whether or not it's, um, it's a fettering of discretion for an officer to say, you know, um, be, because um, for, if, sorry, let me finish that thought. Whether it's a fettering of a discretion for an officer to say, I think that this is for the board to decide or whether or not they need to substantively dive in and say, um, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I think, and, and, and I don't know if that's actually the issue. I'm not sure whether or not that's the issue. Um, have you found cases where they just simply say, this is too much, this needs to be determined um, by the board or, or, or what's the issue there exactly? Okay, well, so let's just go back a little bit to the, 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 the scope of discretion and there's mm -hmm. conflicting federal law on the scope of discretion that right. an officer has. And right. originally there was a case called Cha, which said they had virtually no discretion. Exactly, that's I, I, what I recall. Hernandez came along. And Hernandez, um, Justice Snyder said, there is a duty to consider the circumstances of the case. And um, and she cited the, the various factors. She said for, for a foreign national that is not a permanent resident, that, that the scope of discretion is pretty limited and, and they don't have to give much consideration. Right. But for a permanent resident, a higher threshold. But there's still been cases where, um, you know, judges of saying that there, you know, it's minimal or, you know, they, they have minimal discretion, which is, I, I find- So this is what I don't understand. Raging. I, I, I just think that's wrong. Um, I agree. And then to me, it's the question of like, well, how do you reconcile that with Vavilov? How do you reconcile that with the duties of procedural fairness, particularly when there isn't a full disclosure? This is kind of where I feel like there's still undecided, that there's unresolved law in terms of like, what is, what do you mean by a minimal duty, where minimal discretion? Um, how does that play out in the context of a, of a process that's procedurally fair? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think there is room. I'm, I'm not, unfortunately, overly optimistic. Um, in my experience, and I've been doing this for immigration law for well, well over 30 years. Uh, and um, in my, I've always, my experience has been the federal court is a very cautious court and the federal court of appeal is even more cautious. And, um, you know, it's, you, you don't get a lot of uh, groundbreaking individual rights cases um, coming out of there. Um, it has to usually go to the Supreme Court to getting anything that, that, that might be more, um, I, I'd say more reasonable, but I, I guess more, more favors the individual. More nuanced, um, yeah. I have to say when I, when I read the article in the news about uh, Mr. Sidhu's case, um, this is to me always been an area of tension. This, the, I mean, We've seen this coming like a like a, a thousand ton truck. Uh, I hate the, the this is a terrible metaphor, but a, you know a train coming since we started seeing the loss of it, the, the attrition of appeal rights, and the the way that this this um, this discretion has been delegated down to the to the officer level. Um, but I think Mr. Sadu's case really um, very clearly epitomizes how um, how this can go very badly wrong. 
um, and and just to to see in this in this set of circumstances how there has been a very clear accepting of responsibility. You know exactly what the Ribic test kind of sets up. Great, um, very strong establishment in Canada. Very um, clear acceptance of responsibility for for what what happened. Um, all of these kinds of factors that the Ribic test was intended to to um, take into consideration, and yet no opportunity to raise that in a meaningfully um, a substantive kind of a hearing process. And so it seems to me that if there was going to be a case where the, the way that the system doesn't allow for this type of case to be brought forward, it, it just struck me when I read the article that this, this is exactly it. Well, you know, uh, I would think if we had a right of appeal to go to the Immigration Appeal Division, um, this would be a really strong case. And we'd have I a really so good agree. chance of success. I, I, I just done enough cases before at that level to, to know that um, I, I'd like, my, my odds would be much better than 50-50 at, at, at the board. Uh, but in the context of how it's decided now by the enforcement people, um, it's a much tougher case to, to make. And, and it is, I don't know what's going on. I, I know that um, the officer that's assigned to the case has a good reputation for being a fair person. And, and he's given us lots of time to make submissions. We got multiple extensions of time because in order to, to do it. So they, they really have, in this case, partly because it's so high profile, I think, um, uh -huh. bent over backwards time, but you know, in the in the whole uh, contemplation of, of, of it and the exercise of their discretion, it, it'll be interesting. I think he'll get more consideration in terms of they'll go through a more detailed process because of the, the public scrutiny that's uh, going to be on. Uh, mm -hmm. But but there's that you know that factor of of the social pressure too. You know they're going to be worried about is about, you know if they say you can stay, there's a potential for a public backlash. One mm -hmm. of the yeah. oh, sorry. people who will scream. One of the uh, things that we uh, haven't touched on yet in terms of the options that appeal is, and you just mentioned, uh, you know, you think your odds would be higher than 50% at the appeal, is unlike with this stage one CBSA no appeal right scenario, one of the powers the Immigration Appeal Division has is to issue, so they could either grant the appeal, dismiss it, or uh, stay removal with conditions. So say like, yeah. In uh, Mr. Sadu's case, you know, if there's no more, crim if there's no criminal offense in the next three years, then your appeal is successful and they can impose kind of a test period on people to say, well, exactly well, it as it sounds, like, you... like a conditional discharge almost. Like, you know, if you don't right. commit any further offenses, if you keep the peace at, for two years, then your appeal is successful and you can remain a permanent resident, which the CBSA at this stage one doesn't have. Well, that's a really good point, Stephen. Totally. Yeah. This is when they designed the act. I think that's a, it's a major flaw of the act that um, it's all or nothing for the CDSA. They either send the person to a hearing where they'll be deported, or they issue what's called a stern warning letter, which is virtually meaningless. It just says, hey, if you do it again, you might get deported. Um, it, it, it has no legal effect. Um, whereas with a, a stay issued by the board, if you get a conviction uh, for a removable offense, that is one that's serious criminality, 
your stay automatically ends and you can get deported. You don't even have to get a hearing. Um, they don't have that kind of discretion with CBSA. So officers have to you know, say all or nothing. Does it, and and um, you mentioned earlier, I think, Diana, about uh, cases where there is a, an appeal right, where officers tend to defer to the board. They just say, oh, if it's complicated, I'll, I'll let the board decide. I'm not going to make, you know, I'm just going to refer. And they default to, to referring it to the board. Uh -huh. uh, and I think that, you know, I if, if I were the, the minister um, and the prime minister, I, I, would, I would scrap this automatic loss of, of status uh, or loss of appeal rates. Um, or at the very least, I'd go back to the two-year threshold. That is only for people who had a two-year sentence. But then I would want to institute some a meaningful uh, process of review. And I don't, uh, my inclination would be to have that review happen on the immigration side, not on the, uh, um, uh, not on the CBSI side, CBSA side. And that there's precedent for that because uh, immigration officers routinely write section 44-1 reports uh, of where they right. found somebody in violation. They can do it. Yeah. Um, I think it would be a much fairer consideration uh, if it was made on that side. I, to, I don't know if it's ever been formally proposed, but I, I'm proposing it now. Um, I, you, and, and then the other thing I said, if you're going to leave it with officers, give them the tools, give them something in between so that they can impose conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I like that. You know, uh, it does otherwise you know, become very daunting because it's sort of like they don't have the same range of discretionary um, authorities that the board does. No, it's all or nothing. Yeah. What uh, What would your thoughts be on just criminal judges deciding at the time of sentence immigration consequences as well? Uh, I don't like it. Um, so when I uh, appeared before the Parliamentary Committee on Bill C-43, um, which was where they proposed a number of things, including uh, reducing the, the threshold from two years to six months, and where they uh, also did automatic loss of appeal rates for convictions outside of Canada, permanent resident convicted outside of Canada. Um, there was a lawyer um, uh, who appeared uh, he, at the behest of the Conservative Party. He, he was requested to appear. Um, and he said, well, criminal judges, you know, people do get, these people do get a hearing. They, they get a hearing in front of the criminal court judge. Well, it, it's, it's not the same at all. The, the, the threshold of what they, they consider is, is not even close. Um, and the Supreme Court has said, one of the things they've said is they can consider in immigration factors, but they can't take it out of the range of acceptable sentences uh, for that offense. So um, if a criminal court judge were to reduce a sentence below six months because of the threat of deportation, but the normal range of sentences say is two years plus, um, that's not gonna, that, that's gonna be overturned on appeal. So you don't really get to make your full immigration case um, because their hands are tied. Uh, I, I don't think that would be uh, the best, although I think it's good what the Supreme Court said uh, about uh, it is a relevant factor because there was some case law before that that said that they couldn't consider immigration consequences. Um, and uh, so that, that's, that's helped. Um, and now we're seeing more consideration and we're seeing courts of appeal recognize that uh -huh. that's, that's got to be considered in sentencing. And that's that's a big breakthrough. We just had one of our clients was successful at Court of Appeal on a sentence appeal. Um, and they put it in writing. It was just, uh, they said it's, it's you know, the, the judge erred in not considering the sentence uh, uh -huh. or the immigration court. They wouldn't have done that before. So it's, 
you know, there's some some positive developments that happen. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't know what's left. Um, so uh, let's talk about this. Okay, let's, uh, you know, what happens if they, they decide to send your client to a hearing? Um, you've made all your submissions or they made them themselves and the matter goes to hearing, it's an automatic deportation or that we know that. Now, uh, we will challenge uh, the, the reports, the, the, the decision to write a report and the decision to send them to a hearing. We'll challenge both of those decisions in federal court um, right. and ask that they delay the removal hearing until the outcome of that, that challenge. Right. Um, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Um, and then if, you know, if it's going, if they start removal proceedings, the only thing you can do is ask for a, a deferral. And if they don't defer removal, you ask for a stay from federal court. And those tend to be somewhat limited. But there's one other remedy that people often don't know about. And that, that is that you can make an application for permanent residence on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And my belief is that you should make that application before the person leaves Canada. Uh, because then it's, a, it's an inland application uh, as opposed to an overseas application. Uh, the case law is that, that the, uh, the department has to consider uh, the application. They have to process it, even if the person has been removed from Canada. And if they decide to, remove, to, to approve the application, um, then the person can be brought back to Canada. But, but at what the, point does uh, he the, cease to be a permanent resident? Uh, when the deportation, well, sorry. So when you have uh, a deportation order, um, and if you've got a right of appeal when the appeal is dismissed, or if there's no right of appeal um, when the order issues. So, so the first person, like with Mr. Sidhu's case, if he was sent to a hearing and order deported, um, he was stopping a permanent resident then. So then he would okay. be eligible to make an application for permanent residence. You couldn't make that application beforehand, but right. it's prudent to start preparing it beforehand. Of course. Um, and where as the, the factors in, in a humanitarian application are broader than the ribbage factors. Mm -hmm. um, and so they allow more scope and more emphasis, for instance, on best interests of the child, if any right. children affected, as, as an example. Uh, but then, you know, at least it, you, you might have a better chance and you're, you're then having a case decided by an immigration officer with IRCC rather than a CBSA officer. So it's, um, you, you, you've got a, a better shot at it. If, One if thing I wanted to say just about this culture thing, though, Michael, is that in the past, I used to um, have more success when I was doing something like that, where I had an agency application pending um, in saying to CBSA, hey, would you do me a favor? I've got, I know we've got this person removal ready. Would you give a call to CIC? or to IRCC and say, could you please go ahead and make a decision on that PR application? Because if you approve it, then this person will no longer be removal ready. I used to find that there was a pretty good collaboration sometimes where, you know, they would make a call over and say, I understand that this person's in the queue. Could you please just, you know, find out whether or not this application is approvable. And if it's approvable, then I won't go about removing this person only so that they could come back three months later. And I just, I haven't found those requests very, they've a little fell on uh, deaf ears lately. No, Deanna, that's a really good point. The, uh, um, this is part of the cultural shift that's happened in the department. And, and, and what's happened is that um, 
The CBSA uh, was, it was a merger between the Immigration Enforcement and the Customs Department. Um, now, in terms of volume, the customs guys were about 75, 80%, uh, and it was about 20% immigration. And uh, what's happened is, in, especially in its supervisory and management positions have tend to be dominated by customs legacy uh, officers, not immigration legacy officers. And what we found is most people, it used to be that people in the immigration enforcement had also worked on the Im immigration side of things when it was all one department. And so they, there was a lot of cross-pollination happening and, and, and people, they had the similar mentalities. And, and um, you know, like the, the supervisor of enforcement had been the supervisor of admissions before he got that job, that kind of thing had happened. Uh, but also a lot of the enforcement officers had been immigration officers uh, in, at some time in their career and had that experience. Um, those what we call immigration legacy officers are almost all gone. There's, there's you know, relatively few. And in senior positions, there's almost none of them. And that has contributed uh, both to the, the change in the shifting culture at the CBSA, but also the lack of, of, of you know, I say collaboration between them and, and working together. I mean, yeah. you can still get some of it, um, but it's not the case where these officers know each other personally anymore. No. And, you know, they used to have examples, they used to have a great stampede party every year here in Calgary for the, uh, you know, the, the immigration office. And they'd invite everybody who's involved in the immigration field, including even inviting lawyers. And um, they, after the split, after the divorce, I call it, um, <laughs> they would still, you know, come and it would see, uh, you know, both a, a mix of, uh, CBC and, and IRCC officers. Right. And then in more recent years, um, they stopped coming. Uh, right. And you just stopped seeing them. And, there, and, and it was just like, it, it was just sad to see it was a passing of an error. Yeah. Error. Well, I just, on this point though, I just want to say like, um, I, I appreciate that some of that is just about the old culture and the divorce and all of this sort of thing. But um, this doesn't have to be ancient history. I mean, the, the idea, it just time and time again, seeing that like, you know, somebody is going to be subject to enforcement. Um, you know, we have a case that we're dealing with in our office right now. They're subject to enforcement, but there's like a perfectly good spousal that's just, you know, six months away from being approved. So they're going to remove this guy. We're going to help, you know, and again, like, you know, we're not going to bother doing a stay application. Da, da, da. There's no um, irreparable harm argument, but they're going to remove the guy and then we're going to wait. We're going to get it. He's going to comply and then they're going to bring him back six months later. You know, I just I don't understand why we're doing this, <laughs> you know, like and so I get it. And whether they know one another or not from the good old days, like just pick up the phone and say, hey, IRCC, could you just pull this one out of the batch and approve like or can you just hold off? removal like there's just a nonsensical nature to the way and I understand it's their job they need to enforce this person was an overstay get it get it but like you know um it just seems nonsensical and 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 one more point on this is like yesterday I just appeared across from a, a very young lawyer uh new DOJ counsel it was his first JR 
and he just did a wonderful job. And we just, you know, like it was just, it was very collegial. I understand he's on that side. I'm on this side, but it was like his first JR, you know, it was very collaborative the whole time. You know, we consented to one another's special requests for admitting new stuff. Like, I just don't understand why this culture, it doesn't have to be about history and how things evolved. Like, uh, it doesn't have to be well, this so, way. So, yeah, but remember there, there also have been some changes that, that, that happened at the political level. So if you look at mm -hmm. what happened with it, 43, that was a real game changer. Um, one of the other things they did is change the, um, the, the act used to say that if a person issued a, a removal order, the, the CBSA shall remove as soon as reasonably exactly. That's what it was. And so that gave them a lot of discretion. And so sure. it put reasonableness into it and, and it required them to consider reasonableness. So so then, then you could make an argument with them like, hey, it's not reasonably practicable to, to you know, rip this guy out of Canada when he's got a spousal application that's likely going to be approved anyway. So, you know, why bother? Now you're hit with all the time. They changed it as, you know, like another change that Harper brought in that Trudeau has done nothing about, which is to say, remove as, as soon as possible. And that change is huge. The federal um, court was all over that change too. Like they're yeah. the, the, like arguably, you know, if they weren't, it's gotten to the point where when you read the federal court jurisprudence, if an officer does show flexibility, they're almost doing it contrary to federal court jurisprudence. It makes it very hard to get the federal court to intervene and, and stay removal when mm -hmm. you've got that specific provision in the legislation. And I, you know, I don't get um, why this government hasn't done something to to remedy the, you know, some of these these flaws that are there. Um, it's just uh, I, I I hope. I, I just wish there was somebody there that they could to, to push it in I don't that direction. But I think has this government even done a comprehensive immigration bill or just a bill that did more than amend like two sections of the ERPA at once? Like they did Bill no, C6 for done. citizenship. They like did their comprehensive changes there. I don't think they've yeah. done since 2015. Yeah. So and that still has it referring to six different ancient citizenship acts. So I don't yeah. know. <laughs> no, they, they haven't. Uh, they have, I think it's overdue, especially in this area. It's overdue. I mean, what they've done, remember, is in, in the immigrant selection, it's all done by ministerial instructions now. So, mm -hmm. so the minister can just issue new instructions and change the rules of the game just like that. But uh, when, when it comes to procedural fairness and due process, um, they, they have not they have done nothing to to remedy what was done. They've done it in the criminal law. Um, you know, one of the things that the Harper government did was brought in a lot of mandatory minimum sentences. Um, and uh, the Liberal government has has undone some of those um, and changed the, the rules on that. The, the, this, this procedure of deportation without a right of appeal is like a mandatory minimum. I think the parallel is there. And, you know, with what I would argue if the right case came along in, in, in Courts that it's really effectively like that, and it's a charter breach because of that. But you have to be careful because we've got all these federal court cases that say, no, they can do that. They can they can have automatic. So I think we're, the future lies in hopefully challenging their lack of due process. But I think um, I don't have so much faith in the, the courts to do it. I think it's it's going to be at the political level, um, and it, it needs somebody with you know some commitment to to this. To, to do it and hopefully that's come along. 
Well, Michael, I got to say, I'm very glad that Mr. Sidhu is in your hands uh, in the sense that I think that this is, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of controversy uh, in the legal field uh, that are, he's sitting at the cross sections of a lot of, a lot of these ambiguities in the rules. And I think uh, where these procedural fairness issues are really, really falling down, I think, unfortunately, uh, that's, that's right where he's at right now. Uh, and uh, anyways, I, I think you've got a long road ahead of you and um, hearing your analysis was very informing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, it's one, uh, it's an interesting area. It's, it's, it can be really heartbreaking. And, and, oh, for and sure. I, I, this would be a heartbreaking case uh, if it went against him. Um, yeah, I agree. For a lot of people involved, not just for him, but the, for a lot of people. I know that we've had tremendous public support. It's amazing uh, just from the media coverage, how strong the public support. Um, mm -hmm. I expected of hate mail and, and it's been almost non-existent and rather than you know there are people who still would favor deportation but but it's been overwhelmingly in his support so i hope that that kind of has some you know has some influence on it the people canadians i don't think want to be as harsh as as we are with this current process so hopefully he has a shot uh-huh uh-huh well, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for your insight.